You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the Revolution to fractious Civil War, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 17, The Third Reich, Part 3, The New Nazi Party. This week, a big thank you goes out to Tony, Mark, and Russell for supporting this podcast on Patreon, where they get access to special Patreon-only episodes, as well as ad-free versions of all of the episodes released for the podcast. If that sounds interesting to you, head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more information. I would also like to give a reminder that I'm looking to do a Q&A episode at the end of this series of episodes, so a few months from now. I already have a few questions, so be sure to send in yours via email, social media, or any other way to communicate with me, which you will find in the show notes or on the website at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. In the time after the Beer Hall push, it appeared that, after five very rocky years, the Weimar government was stabilizing. A few weeks before Hitler was released from prison, an election was held with the Social Democrats increasing their vote share to 26%, with the center parties making up a comfortable majority of the Reichstag. This was a good sign for the stability of the nation, and was assisted by discussions that would eventually result in the Dawes Plan, which would seek to try and determine a workable solution for the German government in regards to the reparations owed to other nations after the First World War. Even though the national political situation appeared to be stabilizing, that did not mean that radical political groups just disappeared. But many of these radical groups, like the National Socialists, would find the mid-1920s to be a challenging time, as the German economy began to improve. In this episode, we will discuss the political situation in Germany in more detail, specifically looking at why the smaller parties in Germany, which in aggregate made up only a small percentage of the Reichstag, were still an important political force in the nation. Then we will discuss the events within the Nazi party during the mid-1920s. This would be an important period for the party, as it would develop its base within national politics and also create the administrative, organizational, and propaganda structures that would serve the party so well when they started to ascend not just to national recognition, but national prominence after 1928. One important trend within Germany in the years after the First World War was the growth in the number and support for very small parties. These parties would support a large variety of different positions on different issues. For most, no matter where they fell on the political spectrum, they were generally united in their opposition to the nation's government in Berlin. This was mostly based in the idea that the Reichstag government and the Weimar coalition that supported it was being controlled by special interest groups which were controlled not by the will of the people, but by the money and influence of a small group of individuals. 
Thomas Childers would say in the Third Reich, A History of Nazi Germany, that, quote, They dismissed Weimar's parliamentary system as the tool of powerful special interest and assailed the liberal and conservative parties that had sold out the small businessman, the small farmer, the small homeowner, civil servants, and pensioners, end quote. Not all the parties that held these views would even be really considered radical. Not all of them wanted to violently overthrow the government or launch some kind of revolution. Many just did not believe that the Weimar system was functional. Initially, these groups were small. In 1920, if you combined all their support, it only totaled a few percentage points. However, by 1924, their support had tripled, and their growth would continue. While they would not immediately threaten the larger parties, the continued shift in voter behavior away from the parties that supported the existing political system and towards those that wanted significant change was an incredibly important trend. Among those smaller parties were many that would align reasonably closely with the National Socialists. However, the radical nationalist parties and the German Volkish parties were at this point quite divided and hesitant to work closely together. Many of these smaller parties were led by individuals who valued their independent leadership position and refused to merge with others just for the sake of more electoral success. One of the few individuals with the name recognition and national standing to have any uniting influence was Ludendorff, who would participate in the presidential election in 1925 against his old partner Hindenburg. But Ludendorff would only manage just over 1% of the total vote. Later in the 1920s, he would slide into even more radical politics. In 1928, he would found the Tannenberg League, a party based around fringe conspiracy theories, which were fringe enough that he would not find really any political allies among any other German parties. The period after the failed Beer Hall push was a bit of a wilderness period for the Nazi party, and it was not until Hitler was released from prison that things began to change. The party newspaper, the Volkischer Beobachter, would print a new edition on February 26, 1925, with a long editorial written by Hitler and entitled, A New Beginning. Then on the 27th, the first large public meeting of the party would occur in the Burger Brockheller, the same beer hall which the push was initiated in. The article in the meeting would be the first steps in the creation of a very different party. The most important change was a shift away from the militant radicalism from before the push, and instead of focus on becoming a party that participated in and sought to make changes through the legal political methods available. This meant that the party would seek to build up its members and funding, and it would use that funding to run for political offices around the country. The hope was that this would allow the party to eventually take control of Germany, although it might take a slightly longer period to do so. This policy was not fully embraced by the entire party, with there still being members who believed that violent revolution was the best and perhaps only true path forward. Hitler was able to maintain enough control, and he would increase this control very quickly to prevent these revolutionaries from controlling the course of events. These two different points of view between the revolutionary path and the more conventional political path was a disagreement that would not be finally resolved until 1934. With the shift in 1925 towards becoming a larger political party, pursuing purely political objectives, we should spend a bit of time discussing how the Nazi leadership structure was composed during this period. The leadership of the Nazi party that would be put in place during the late 1920s would in many cases be the same men who would lead the party during the Second World War. They were, however, relatively young at this stage, at least relative to most politicians, with most of the core leadership of the party being under the age of 40 and some being far closer to 30. 
One of the major features of this party leadership from these early moments was a huge amount of infighting between the leadership. Even though the various personalities, men that would later become well-known like Goering and Hess and Rome and Strasser, among others, would often be at odds with each other, they were still at least somewhat loyal to Hitler. In leadership role, Hitler often kept his distance from these squabbles of others within the party, a purposeful aloofness which was done for two reasons. The first was that he believed that if his subordinates were allowed to solve their own problems, or at least to be allowed to fight amongst themselves, it would allow the most capable individuals to assert themselves. In theory, this would allow more capable leadership to form, and the party would be stronger for it. The second was that he wanted to remain detached as a way of always retaining sole control of the party. By not taking a firm stance on many issues, and in fact purposefully keeping his exact position on many issues sort of vague, he was able to retain future flexibility. This was not always possible, though, and there were times when Hitler, as the leader of the party, would be forced to make definitive statements and take control of his subordinates. A great example of this would occur in 1926, and would be precipitated by a critical member of the Nazi leadership during the mid and late 1920s that is far less known than many of the others that would be part of the Third Reich after 1933, and his name was Gregor Strasser. Strasser would be put in charge of running most of the party's recruitment campaigns in northern Germany, with Hitler retaining control of the South. Strasser would support Hitler's position as leader of the party, but unlike some of the other party leaders, he had a different view of his relationship with Hitler. Some were blindly loyal to Hitler, but Strasser viewed Hitler as an important piece of the party, as a person who was able to hold all the various factions together, but not an infallible person, and not one that should be blindly followed. Strasser would be one of the major public faces of the party in Berlin in his role as a member of the Reichstag. In November 1925, he would say in the Reichstag that, quote, We National Socialists want the economic revolution involving the nationalization of the economy. We want in place of an exploitive capitalistic economic system a real socialism, maintained not by a soulless Jewish materialist outlook, but by the believing, sacrificial, and unselfish old German community sentiment community purpose, and community feeling. We want the social revolution in order to bring about the national revolution." End quote. This quote is important because it shows very clearly that Strasser had a different view of what the party should be. He was shaped by the political landscape of northern Germany, and he, along with many other northern Nazi political leaders, believed that the party should pursue a policy that was much more closely aligned with radical socialism. This was popular in the more industrial northern Germany. It was also in those same northern cities where the more moderate socialist parties like the Social Democrats saw their greatest support. However, if Strasser and others wanted the Nazi party to pursue a platform based on socialism, it would require changes to the basic tenets of the party, a change to those 25 points we discussed two episodes ago. Strasser would seek to enact those changes with the help of one Josef Goebbels. In 1925, Goebbels would be just 28 years old, but he was known for his speaking and writing skills. During the winter of 1925 to 1926, Strasser and Goebbels would work on a new party program. They were both strong supporters of a shift of the party to the left and towards a policy built around finding support from the German workers, the German proletariat. There were several facets of this new program that would have represented a drastic change in policy for the Nazi party. It included a call for closer relations with Russia and a more direct support for socialism. Drafts of this new program were sent around to many leaders in the North. Not everyone that read the platform agreed with it, but it did find strong support among Northern leaders. 
As a first step towards its implementation, Strasser hoped that the party would publicly support a new piece of legislation that was sponsored by the communists and the social democrats. It called for all property of the monarchy, so that would be estates and, and possessions of the former German ruling family, to be requisitioned by the state. This was a law that was strongly supported by the parties on the left and strongly resisted by those on the right, many of which hoped to eventually restore the monarchy to its previous position. If the Nazi party wanted to drastically change the perception of it among the public, it would have been the perfect opportunity. When Hitler learned of the program being circulated by Strasser, he was furious for a variety of reasons. Some of these reasons were practical. The party was starting to garner support from some of the large industrial families and also from former members of the monarchy. They were monetarily contributing to the party at a time when their personal contributions were critical to the growth and continued existence of the Nazi party. If the party was seen to work with the communists and socialists, this support might be removed. The other reasons were more philosophical, with Hitler firmly supporting the principle of private property. Hitler was not alone in these beliefs, and he was supported by many within the party, both in the North and the South. In February 1926, this ideological conflict between the two groups would be confronted directly during a meeting that Hitler called in the city of Bamberg. The meeting was designed from the start to put Strasser at a disadvantage. It was held in southern Germany, and it was attended almost entirely by party leaders from the south, except for Goebbels and Strasser. When the meeting began, Hitler would address the group, apparently for something like two hours, during which he directly confronted some of the ideas found in Strasser's new program, although apparently he never used Strasser's name. He restated that the party would always support the concept of private property, it would not support the socialists and communists on the question of royal property, and that the 25 points of the party program from 1920 were unalterable in any way. Confronted by such opposition to their proposed changes, Strasser and Goebbels relented, and they agreed to abandon their new changes. They also agreed to destroy all copies of the program that had been circulated. The Bomberg meeting had important influence on the future of the Nazi party. Hitler had firmly established his control over the party, and most importantly, he had established control over its platform. It would also completely remove the possibility of a slide to the left by the party. Hitler had essentially ruled it out, and he was able to keep everybody else on his side. On an individual level, it was also an important moment for Goebbels, who would begin to distance himself from Strasser in the following months. Eventually, he would publicly break from Strasser. An important step for the person who would later become one of Hitler's most ardent supporters during his rise to power. After the Bamberg meeting, Hitler's position as leader of the party would also become much more secure, and the leadership cult, which would later become a hallmark of the party, would begin to present itself. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. 
On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. During the mid-1920s, the Nazi party was heavily reliant on its most supportive members to keep the party going. This was a period where the party was not hugely popular throughout the nation, and it was very distant from accomplishing its goal with its new electoral strategy. Much like the fascists in Italy, members of the party at this point played a critical role in convincing those outside the party that the Nazi party had the kind of dynamism and vitality that so many other political parties were lacking. They would give the party something that the leaders of the party could never provide directly, a kind of street-level presence that was essentially impossible to fake. For those members who were out on the street, they believed that they were making sacrifices of their time, their money, and even their bodies for a cause that they believed in. For many of these individuals, the most important part of the party's ideology was its emphasis on social solidarity, the idea that Germans must remain united, together, in common purpose. Many of the other pieces of the party platform were secondary to the idea that the most important way for Germany to evolve and develop was through unity. This militant unity was only strengthened by the violence that was done both by and to these supporters. These were SA members, and they were known as stormtroopers, and there would be clashes in the streets of many German cities during these years, with the supporters of the Nazi party on one side and those of social democrats or the communists or other parties on the other. Both these violent clashes and the government's reaction to it by arresting Nazi supporters strengthened the belief that the Nazi party was fighting against enemies of the people and of Germany itself. Over the last half of the 1920s, the party would grow, albeit slowly. In 1925, it would have just 27,000 members, but by 1929, it would have 178,000. Not all of these members were necessarily fanatical stormtrooper types. Some of them could easily be mistaken for ordinary citizens, but they were drawn to the Nazi party because they believed it was the party who could and would fix problems in Germany. Here is Roger Griffin from The Nature of Fascism. Quote, what enabled the NSDAP to eclipse all other ultra-right formations after 1925, however, was not just the ideological appeal of its policies to ultra-right activists and intellectuals who, after all, represented a small percentage of the population. Far more important in the long run was its impact on the increasing number of ordinary Germans who came, became convinced that Nazism really was different that it could break the mold of the Weimar system, that the NSDAP was the nucleus of a national revolution which was already underway, no matter how many seats it held in the despised Reichstag. 
To these supporters, unity was also an important part of the party platform. The Nazi party claimed to be able to solve the political divisions that were growing in Berlin during this period, as the unity that had been present during the early years of the Weimar government began to disintegrate, and this was a very appealing message to many Germans. Trying to grow the support outside of its more fanatical core would prove to be a challenge for the party in the late 1920s. There were several things working against the Nazi party at this period. Before the Great Depression would hit in 1929, the German government and the German businesses were able to utilize a large amount of foreign loans to kickstart the economy. Much of this money came from the United States, which would cause problems after 1929, but before that it meant that the German economy was actually doing quite well. In 1928, unemployment would fall below a million for the first time in a decade, and this type of relative prosperity, which was felt throughout most of Germany, made for very infertile ground for the Nazi message of drastic change. During this period, there was also some confusion in the overall message of the party when it came to publicity and propaganda. The party really was of two minds about the best path forward in terms of gathering more support. On one side, there were Strasser and others who believed that they should put more effort and money into gaining the support of urban workers. To gain support from this group, Strasser hoped to emphasize the party's anti-capitalist agenda. However, balanced against this, there would always be a strong group of Nazi leaders who preferred a rural focus for the party. Support for such a rural emphasis was strong in the South. It would be the rural voters themselves that helped shift the Nazi leaders into putting more energy into trying to engage those in the countryside. The party would find itself gaining supporters before 1928 in these rural areas, even without having a clear message for those individuals, which would change as the party shifted its focus to attract them directly. There were many reasons why the Nazi message found support among the farmers, both large and small, within Germany. It helped that one of the core party principles revolved around the importance of blood and soil, and this put an emphasis on the land and those who worked it, which obviously appealed to the rural German worker. A rural focus for the party would also manifest in clarifications of party policies, like a clarification of point 17 of the 25 points, which said, quote, We demand a land reform shaped by our national requirements, the passing of a law for the expropriation of land for public utility without compensation, the abolition of land interest, and the prohibition of land speculation of any kind, end quote. In April 1928, Hitler would make it clear that this really meant that only non-German and Jewish land would be taken over by the government, not all of the land. This was a simple clarification, but not an alteration, absolutely not, because those 25 points were unalterable even by Hitler himself. But this clarification obviously greatly changed what that point actually meant in terms of the Nazi political platform. While support for the party had been growing for years before 1928, it is worth noting that the party was still quite small. In the elections in May 1928, they would receive just 2.6% of the nationwide vote, which allowed them to have just 12 members in the Reichstag. This meant that they were the ninth largest party in Germany and received under a million votes. They were not non-existent, and in some regional elections they gained far more support. But they still had a long way to go if they wanted to accomplish their goals. 
They would be greatly assisted in accomplishing those goals by the trials and challenges faced by the Weimar government, especially when the greatest economic issues since the end of the war would hit Germany in 1929. And those events will be our topic for next episode.